You had an option, sir. You could have said, I am not going to do it. This is wrong for Canada. You're listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And now here's your host, Neil White. Welcome to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? I'm your host, Neil White, joined as always by my brother, David. David, how are you doing? Pretty good, Neil. And how are you doing out there? Let us know. We want to hear from you at When Art Thou? Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. DMs are open, as the kids say. You can send us a message or tag us in your tweet or your Instagram, whatever it is. Let us know what's going on with you. We'd love to hear from you. But first, have you got a story to tell us, David? I don't know. I might. Well, we'll go back in time and see what happens. David, when art thou? Neil, it's early May, 1883. Capitaine de Vaisseau Henri Rivière commands a small, more or less government-authorized French military force occupying the city of Hanoi. Tensions are already high when French troops start finding posters that have been pasted onto walls across the city, taunting them. They say, You French bandits, if you think you are strong enough, send your rabble of soldiers to Fu Hawaii to fight in the open field with my tiger warriors, and then we will see who is the strongest. Pride stung, Riviere decides to lead a small force north to fight the legendary bandit general, Liu Yongfu, and his Black Flag Army. All right, David, well, I don't know anything about this, but just going on the names, Tiger Warriors, Black Flag Army, the Vietnamese have got some cool names going on for them, David. What's the situation in Vietnam at the time? So this is a very complex situation. Roughly the southern half of Vietnam has already been occupied by the French well before this period. Is this roughly the same southern half that would comprise South Vietnam once we get later into the American occupation? Very similar, yes. But the northern half of Vietnam remains under the rule of the Nguyen dynasty of Vietnamese emperors, but their power is increasingly limited as with half of their tax base gone, their army slowly disintegrating from lack of funds, they've been less and less able to exert control over their own northern border regions in the highlands between China and Vietnam, which is where the Black Flag Army enters the scene. Now, I know you're an expert on the Taiping Rebellion in China, so I don't need to tell you anything about what happened there. Of course I am, but maybe refresh it for people who don't know as much. Just to stick to what's really relevant, after the younger brother of Jesus Christ, the self-proclaimed younger brother of Jesus Christ, I should perhaps say, led his armies against the Manchu occupiers of China who had been occupying it at this point for 200 years, give or take, and lost the Chinese government pushing back down into the south, which had been the Taiping stronghold, began breaking up the remnants of the 
Taiping armies because clearly they weren't thrilled with them. And for sensible former Taiping soldiers, not wanting to face the wrath of the imperial government heading towards them, fleeing towards the southern highlands, which were less under governmental control, was a good idea. But fleeing across the border into the Vietnamese northern highlands was even better because it put you beyond the easy reach of the Chinese government's counterinsurgency forces. So you have a bunch of former soldiers running across the border into Vietnam. Exactly. And in general, those types of situations tend to cause problems for the government that has to deal with the incoming ex-soldiers. It certainly doesn't make things easier for the Nguyen emperors already dealing with this French aggression. So by the late 1860s, you have large numbers of ex-Taiping soldiers floating around in the border regions between China and Vietnam, and they start to coalesce into two separate armies, which become known to the locals and then later to themselves after their battle standards, their flags. There's the yellow flag army and the black flag army. I don't know, David. I think black flag army sounds a lot cooler than yellow flag army. I mean, I kind of agree with you, but, you know, whatever your preferred flag color may be, we're not here to judge. But as it happens, the black flag army ends up being substantially more successful, which in turn makes it more able to, in a sense, almost achieve near independence for a while from Vietnamese control. So by the end of the 1860s, start of the 1870s, the Black Flag Army is taxing trade routes and rivers in their territory, holding off attacks from the Yellow Flag Army and even pursuing it into its own territory, and just generally is the most powerful force in this highland region in northern Vietnam. I can see why you said the situation was complex, David, when you have these armies practically acting like states. It gets very confusing very quickly. But then it gets even more confusing. First, because the Chinese launch several interventions initially designed to break down these armies that they're afraid of because they're ex-Taiping troops mostly, and they're concerned that they're going to try and lead another Chinese rebellion if they're left alone. And then after the Chinese armies finally cease their attempts to destroy these forces, which in many ways has only served to toughen them up and make them more professional because they've had to get better at defending themselves in real battle rather than just being bandits. The Vietnamese government comes to Liu Yongfu, now the undisputed general of the Black Flag Army, the largest standing force in northern Vietnam, military force. And they tell him that there's been an invasion and the French are attempting to seize Hanoi. So they're asking for his help. They want him to 
essentially become part of the formal Vietnamese state and drive out the French invaders. And surprisingly, he says yes. So the government is teaming up with this rogue army to fight the French now. Yes. And because things weren't confusing enough, this French force, led by a naval officer by the name of Garnier, is not really an official French force. I mean, they are, but officially they're supposed to be an exploratory, a peaceful exploratory force mapping out Vietnam. But they've gone rogue and invaded Hanoi in the assumption that if they win, the French government will back them up, which is why the Vietnamese government views it as so important that they get defeated quickly, because if they don't get official support, then one quick victory and they're gone. David, when you have all these rogue military officers creating little fiefdoms for themselves in Vietnam, I know how this ends. I saw Apocalypse Now. (laughs) But real life is always slightly more complicated than the movies. So what happens to the French force invading Hanoi? So this is the first French force invading Hanoi under Garnier. And they lose. The Black Flag Army comes south, launches an attack on their positions in Hanoi before they've properly fortified them. Garnier and his force rush out to try and drive them off. They fail. Garnier is killed. And after he dies, his troops are no longer enthusiastic about this whole adventure. They flee south. And the French government sends a peace commission up to Hanoi to meet with the emperor and apologize for this crazy rogue officer who clearly did some crazy rogue things but the French just having come out of the Franco-Prussian war which they lost and not really having the money for colonial adventures say that was just a rogue action and we want to make peace so a peace treaty is signed and everything is good forever it never seems to go that way David so who's going to break the peace treaty this time So this brings us back to where we started this podcast. In 1883. 1883. Henri Rivière has been sent north by the French government with a military force to resolve some disputes arising out of the interpretation of the Treaty of 1874 that was signed after Garnier's officially rogue operation. And as soon as he reached Hanoi, he tried to seize the citadel, and once he'd done that, announced that this was now the Vietnamese were unreasonable, and they just had to annex the entire northern half of Vietnam, what the French at the time called Tonkin you may imagine that the emperor was not happy. So the peace treaty hasn't lasted too long and the French are now taking charge, seizing cities and declaring themselves the leaders. So there's only one thing that the Vietnamese can do. They turn to the force that worked last time and they ask 
the Black Flag Army once again to take up arms and save Hanoi. This time, David, might be a little more challenging as the French have had some time to get settled in and presumably have their defenses more ready than Garnier's troops did. Exactly, which is what makes the posters that Liu Yongfu orders drawn up so clever. He's pasting them. I only gave a very short quote at the start of this episode, but it's actually quite a long poster. And it taunts the French, it talks about how awful they are, and it talks about how they're cowards, how they're hiding behind their defenses, and they're afraid to face the Black Flag Army's tiger warriors in the open field. And the question is, are the French going to take that? Well, David, you have to imagine it would be hard for any self-respecting soldier to just sit back behind his defenses and take the taunts from the enemies. Personally, I feel like if you have good defenses, taunting is a lot easier to endure than bullets. But apparently, Riviere disagreed because he led his forces north to the Paper Bridge, which was where the Black Flag Army had dug itself in just north of the city of Hanoi. So this is really brilliant by the Black Flag Army, David. They've completely flipped the situation. They've gone from them having to be the ones attacking the French defenses to convincing the French to come out and attack their defenses with just a few taunts on a piece of paper. Exactly. And on the 19th of May, 1883, Riviere leads his forces across the bridge and into an ambush. Riviere is killed. His forces are defeated. They're forced to flee from Hanoi again. And the people of Vietnam and the emperor and the Black Flag Army are all feeling like they've just pulled off another Garnier. Like they have just driven the French out and that's going to be it. The French are going to disavow this action and go back to some kind of peace treaty until they break it again. But still, a real solid win. It is a pretty stunning victory, David. The Vietnamese managed to completely flip the situation and end up winning at the end of the day. Is there a but? There's a but. So what the Vietnamese don't know is what's happening back in Paris. A new conservative government has just been elected under Jules Ferry, the French politician, and he wants a more aggressive colonial policy. He thinks that this will help to assert France's status in the world, overawe the British, and grant them the resources to beat the Germans. And he hears about how two rogue operatives have conquered Hanoi twice. And what he's thinking about is not that they were driven out again. It's how weak he thinks that makes the Vietnamese forces look. So he announces that they're not disavowing Riviere's action. Instead, they're accusing the Vietnamese government of murdering Captain Riviere and a number of his forces on their diplomatic mission to Hanoi. And in response, he's leading an invasion into northern Vietnam. David, you can always count on the European colonialists to pretty much do 
the worst possible thing. So now the French are going to attack Vietnam. If Jules Ferry thinks they're weak, David, has he even heard their nicknames? Tiger Warriors? Black Flag Army? It's pretty cool nicknames for someone he thinks they're weak. I mean, your issue here is, well, racism. The Europeans at this point, the 1880s, the peak of the colonial period, they're just isn't any real respect for foreign countries outside of Europe. The Europeans have better military technology than anyone else in the world. As they quickly start to demonstrate, as the battles of the Franco-Vietnamese War begin, they drive north, seizing town after town, and the Black Flag Army begins standing up to them, holding critical positions in brutal sieges and grim retreats and ambushes, but casualties mount, and soon it seems like the Black Flag Army are on the ropes, like one more push could lead to their defeat and the collapse of the rest of independent Vietnam. So this is now a full-fledged war as the French have invaded Vietnam, pushing back against the Black Flag Army, and things are not looking good for the Vietnamese, David. Tell us about this last position and what the Vietnamese need to do to be able to hold on here. Well, at this point, the Vietnamese have been driven out of practically the entirety of their country. There are really only holding on to a narrow strip along the Chinese border. And it seems like there's no realistic hope left. But then I mentioned earlier that the Chinese government had sent forces into Vietnam in the 1860s to try and defeat any remnants of the Taiping rebels who were hanging out there. Now they did that with the permission of the Vietnamese government. And once they'd sent troops in some locations, strategic locations, they stayed. They maintained garrisons to, you know, ensure that no rebels snuck across into China, which meant that as the French pushed north, they wandered in to contact with Chinese troops, which led to confused border fighting between French troops trying to wipe out Vietnamese resistance and Chinese troops stationed on Vietnamese territory but unwilling to just surrender to the French. So now the war expands. So as if a confused situation weren't already confused enough, it's about to get more confusing as we add the Chinese into this war. And Jules Ferry is not confused at all. Jules Ferry views this as a golden opportunity to wage war on China and force China to make concessions to France, just like France and Britain were able to force concessions out of China in the Opium Wars, which had occurred a few decades earlier. So, David, is this going to unfold in the same sort of manner for the French? And initially, 
it looks like things are going good. The Chinese fleet is defeated at sea. The French launch an invasion of Taiwan, which they intend to hold as a colonial possession. And the French prepare for another push to eliminate the last of the Vietnamese resistance and punch across the border into China and hold some Chinese cities to ransom, basically. But then things turn around. The expedition in Taiwan is a disaster. It collapses and the Black Flag Army, re-equipped and with new recruits fresh from China, is suddenly back in the game fighting now alongside the Chinese armies in a number of bitter actions fought essentially along the Chinese-Vietnamese border as the French casualties begin to mount. So David, attacking the Chinese seemed like a golden opportunity for the French, but it's turned into a bit of a turning point in this battle as it's given the Vietnamese some hope and a new ally to help them fight back against the French, David. Is this going to end up being a terminal strategic mistake? Well, that depends on whose point of view you're taking. For Jules Ferry, this is a terminal strategic mistake. The French call it l'affaire Tonkin. It's a dramatic political debacle. Ferry needs more money to pay the troops, the additional troops he's sending to Vietnam to win this war. But his political opponents view the entire war as a series of blunders he has made that have forced the French Empire to fight in a remote corner of the world they know very little about with unnecessarily heavy casualties in a war against China that they are not winning. And he actually loses a vote of confidence in the French parliament and is forced out of office to be replaced by his greatest political rivals. With Ferry gone, the French government decides on a new strategy. The strategy that, from their perspective, will win them the war. But it's not a military strategy. Instead, what the French do is a diplomatic offensive. Going to China and offering significant concessions on everything directly related to the Chinese government's priorities if China will ignore the French occupation of Vietnam. So it's an about face now for the French as they're the ones who have the government fall, a new government come into place, and they are going to China looking for concessions. How do the Chinese feel about all this, David? They've just been fighting against the French. Are they willing now to treat with them and let them occupy Vietnam? It's a sad fact, but they are. The Chinese government views this in many ways as a victory. The French make some concessions along the border, which means that the area of Chinese control is actually bigger. China is expanding. 
And it's the first time that they can claim to their own populace to have really defeated a European power, which is a powerful claim to make in a country that's still so traumatized from the Opium Wars. But at the same time, to get this treaty, they have abandoned their allies in Vietnam, and Vietnam will remain under French occupation into the 1950s. Well, David, I'm sure that everyone will learn from history and nobody will ever again invade Vietnam without a solid plan and great strategies. Do we ever learn from history, Neil? As a point of fact and just an interesting end to this story, most of the Black Flag Army's members being Chinese exiles in the first place, many of them, especially the senior leadership, will return back to China, frequently regarded as heroes for their resistance to European imperialism. And Liu Yongfu will have one more last gasp at international fame when in 1895 he becomes the general commanding all troops of the newfounded Republic of Taiwan, which is fighting against not European imperialism, but Japanese imperialism, as the Japanese empire attempts to seize its first colony in China, ultimately successfully. So David, future empires or wannabe empires may not have learned from this history lesson, what can we learn from this history lesson today as we're listening to this podcast? Well, the first point that I would like to make is solidarity. The strength of the Black Flag Army was in its courage, its willingness to stand up for what they fought for, but also in its ability to stand with its allies, which ultimately is what they lacked when at the end of their final campaign without being defeated in the field they were finally driven from vietnam so something to think about thanks for telling us this story david hopefully there is something we can learn from history and on that note david we always like to end the show with a quiz something a little fun a little more light than all the war and death that happens <laughs> earlier in the episode. And today's quiz, I thought we'd go back to one we'd done before. We did a uh, Hollywood quiz, David, where we looked at some famous blockbuster movies based on historical periods and saw if they were true or not so true. Today we're going to do a similar thing, but we'll move over to the small screen and we'll talk about some TV shows. So I'm calling this quiz True or TV true. So you have to tell me whether these factoids from famous historical TV shows are in fact true or whether they fudge them a little for television. All right, what do you got? Let's start with the HBO miniseries John Adams. And in it, the man who would become the second president of the United States actually defends the British perpetrators of the Boston Massacre. True or TV true? That's actually quite true, Neil. It is true, an amazing historical fact that John Adams did in fact defend the British soldiers. 
although the show combines the two trials into one single trial, so they did have to fudge it a little bit. Let's switch over to the Showtime drama The Borgias. The famous political thinker Machiavelli is an advisor to the Italian Borgia family. True or TV true? If I recall correctly, we did an episode featuring Machiavelli quite a while ago. We did, David. Episode 33, The Diplomat, The Duke, and The Dead Pope. So you can go back to listen to that if you're interested in the great thinker Machiavelli. And in that episode, I think we actually mention his friendship with some of the Borgia family, but I don't recall him ever being any kind of formal advisor to any of them. So I'd have to call this TV true. You're right. It is false that he served the Borgias as depicted in the television show. And we should also point out that there was no record of family incest, despite what the show would have you believe. Game of Thrones has a lot to answer for. Speaking of steamy shows, David, in the Outlander series, World War II nurse Claire Randall travels back in time to Scotland of 1743, where she is prosecuted for witchcraft. True or TV true? We're talking, of course, about the witchcraft part, not so much the time travel part. The time travel part would be a lot easier to answer, but even in Scotland, a remote part of Europe at the time, I believe it's fairly unlikely that they would have been initiating witchcraft trials, so I will say TV true. You're right, David. Parliament had actually taken the crime of witchcraft off the books nearly a decade earlier in 1735. In the History Channel drama Hatfields and McCoys, the titular characters come to blows for a number of reasons, including a stolen pig. True or TV true? Ah, I do not know much about the feud between the Hatfields and the McCoys, but Certainly, many a notorious feud has been started by depressingly minor incidents. So, I will say that, to me, that sounds true. You're on a roll, David. That is true. Among other things, Randall McCoy believed that a Hatfield stole one of his hogs in 1878. And finally, David, in the PBS series Victoria... Much of season one revolves around the young Queen Victoria being smitten with her advisor, Lord Melbourne. True or TV true? Hmm. Again, not a topic that I would know everything about offhand, but that sounds to me as the sort of thing that a writer would add to spice up a possibly otherwise less than thrilling moment in his subject's life, so I'll say TV true. We're giving you this one as well, David. Victoria fell in love with Prince Albert at first sight, rather than growing into their relationship the way it's depicted in the TV show. Excellent work there, David. You really know your TV, (laughs) or maybe your history. Let's go with the second one, okay? Thanks for playing, and thanks for listening.